In the conversation you're about to hear, Phil Magnus joins me to discuss the Harvard fiasco surrounding Claudine Gay, the former president of Harvard, who swiftly fell from grace when she was exposed as a serial plagiarist. Plagiarism after plagiarism after plagiarism across more than half of her works. You start to get to 50 different examples. Uh, it's kind of like it's time to throw in the towel. Phil Magnus is an economic historian and David J. Thoreau chair in political economy at the Independent Institute. Part of Phil's work specializes in studying and exposing the ideological capture of higher ed and unethical behavior in academia, and his work was instrumental in exposing Gay's history of plagiarism throughout her career. He was also a major figure in exposing Fauci and Francis Collins' suppression of the Great Barrington Declaration and the censorship of its eminent authors. Phil is a truth seeker and rigorous academic who confronts institutional abuses and cover-ups despite taking serious heat. You know, I think a real problem that Harvard and other elite universities have right now is they've opened the door to this critical theory mindset, which, you know, as, as far as I'm concerned, critical theory is the humanities and social sciences equivalent of astrology. We talk about identity politics, the elitist snobbery within academia, and the origins of the anti-Semitic worldview of the far left. Hope you enjoy this episode of the Kate Wan Podcast. You can also check it out on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and make sure to leave your comments below. Now let's get into it. For anybody who doesn't know the story already, Phil, what, what, how did it all explode? Right. So uh, I'd say the, uh, the mechanism that set everything into motion was when Claudine Gay and two other university presidents uh, testified before Congress about the uh, outburst of anti-Semitism on campuses. And this is mostly anti-Semitism that's coming from the far left. It's been provoked by the uh, the war with Hamas in, in Gaza that's ongoing right now. And, uh, it, you know, you've seen an explosion of very far left voices basically trying to justify the terrorist attacks uh, that took place back in October. And as a result, uh, Congress convened a hearing and they brought in the presidents of uh, the University of Pennsylvania, Harvard and MIT to testify on this. And uh, by all accounts, it was a disastrous testimony where the three presidents basically embarrassed themselves. You know, they were asked at point blank uh, to condemn anti-Semitism on campus. And they said, well, it depends on the context and gave these really wishy-washy answers that uh, uh just came across as, as kind of heartless and atrocious in the way that uh, it was played. But this shined, a, uh, it basically redirected a microscope onto all three university presidents. The pre president of Penn resigned uh, in the wake of a donor revolt. And then Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, uh, that microscope started to look into her academic record. And there had been rumors for years that uh, Claudine Gay, so even long before she was president of Harvard, there had been rumors uh, percolating around online about uh, substandard levels of rigor in her academic work. Uh, she's a political scientist by background, and uh, although she had certainly published original research, it was a, a thin CV for someone that uh, would go on to become a, a very high-level administrator and then, then the president of Harvard. Uh, so those rumors had been there since before she was appointed president. But what the testimony did is it redirected attention back onto her academic work. And uh, people started looking at it. And very quickly, uh, they discovered that the rumors were indeed true. There were signs of plagiarism in her doctoral dissertation. And that was really what uh, uh, opened up 
the full inquiry was the discovery of the first signs in the doctoral dissertation. So it was really funny because when you saw the response originally, before kind of the the plagiarism allegations really became serious and impossible to ignore, you saw that people rallied around her to really defend her, uh, including like I think New York Times and all the left-leaning media, um, and basically saying like, even some people accusing uh, her critics of being racist, right? Of saying like, you're trying to take her down for reasons of the color of her skin. So what was that response like before it was clear that, you know, she was a serial plagiarist? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I kind of likened it to a, a journalistic rope-a-dope, uh, the way that the story played out, because the very first release, the very first uh, news article that came out about it focused only on the doctoral dissertation. And this had been written uh, a little over 25 years ago. Um, there were clear signs of plagiarism in it. And uh, when the word of that story got out, you know, Harvard kind of uh, went into lockdown mode around her. Uh, they circled the wagons to defend her. Uh, they started issuing statements claiming that they uh, had investigated and it was not plagiarism. And she was seeking corrections, uh, amendments to her dissertation, things like that. Uh, the New York Post, in fact, had been probing around in the story since at, right after the congressional testimony. And they had sent Harvard a um, a a letter asking them to respond to signs of plagiarism and Harvard hired a, a law firm, a, uh, a defamation law firm and sent them a legal threat that said, if you publish the story, we're going to basically sue you. And uh, they, the letter, which the New York post has since released <laughs> basically saw this claim that said, uh, we investigated and denied that there was plagiarism and yet the timelines don't add up uh, because the, the, the letter to the New York Post denied any plagiarism before Harvard claimed it even investigated. So uh, it was really a circle of the wagons with a foregone conclusion that they were going to try and, and, and uh, exonerate her. Now, the rope-a-dope comes in because the dissertation wasn't the only part of the story. It was just the tip of the iceberg. They found instances of plagiarism. Everyone circled the wagons around her and said, oh, well, this is 25 years ago. It's no big deal. She's made corrections. And then a couple days later, the Washington Free Beacon releases a new set of plagiarism allegations that had gone through uh, the remainder of her academic work. And they find uh, eventually, uh, you know, this starts to, to spiral out of control I think the current count is it's around 50 different instances of plagiarized passages, and it extends to over half of her published academic work. Uh, so this is like a 20-year, 25-year uh, part of her career where there's this recurring pattern that's played out. And that is what es- essentially tipped uh, the, uh, the scales against Claudine Gay in the end is the fact that uh, this pattern continued to be uh, discovered. So it was even like right after New Year, they found uh, even more instances come to light. And I'm certain that if you check the remainder of her works, uh, you'd probably continue to find a similar pattern. Uh, so the rope hope was that they pulled everyone into Defender. And then it turns out it's multiple times worse uh, based on things that were found in her other academic works. And, uh, and that really kind of caught Harvard and their defenders in the media completely off guard. And yet they're throwing up these excuses, accusing anyone that's pointing out plagiarism. Well, well, this is racism. This is a uh, manufactured campaign. They attacked the people that discovered the plagiarism because it was Chris Rufo at the Manhattan Institute. And he's a controversial figure. Uh, mm-hmm. So they went after him and said, well, his motives are poisoned. Uh, yes. This is a bad faith search for plagiarism. 
And it's like, well, wait, wait a minute. You aren't disputing that the plagiarism occurred anymore. Uh, you're just trying to euphemize it. And Harvard issued all these, uh, these strange twists of, of phrases. They called it duplicative language instead of plagiarism or insufficient citation instead of plagiarism. Yet if you go to Harvard's policy for students, all of these terms that they are, are, are trying to, to euphemize it with, uh, basically are describing what would count as plagiarism if you were a student at Harvard today. Yeah, so I want to get into that for sure, because there was a policy change in 2019 under Claudine mm. Gay, which we can talk about a little bit later. Um, but it's pretty crazy to me. Like, I think about the New York Post. They were involved with the Hunter Biden story as well. They were suppressed then. So, like, they seem to kind of really be on the cutting edge of exposing these kinds of things and getting themselves into really hot water. Um, so like, what does this say to you about freedom of the press in general? Like when you see that kind of attack and, and kind of threats towards uh, people who just want to pursue the truth? Yeah, well, I, I think over the last decade or so in particular, we've really seen a sharp shift in media culture and journalism to uh, a monolithic viewpoint from the political left. And what it means is that there are a few standouts that are willing to question that, and they're increasingly alone whenever they uh, are pursuing journalism that reflects poorly on the political left. Uh, so it used to be, you know, even though the Washington Post and the uh, New York Times and these, these major legacy newspapers, they always leaned left on their editorial direction, but the reporting function of them tried to give some balance or at least put uh, uh, gestures into covering both sides of the story. And I think what we've seen in the last decade or so is they've, uh, they've given up any pretense of trying to be objective or trying to have any balance. Uh, and what they do is they try to put their thumb on the scale in the direction that favors the political left. Uh, this is a, a, a similar pattern in academia. It had always been left of center as far as we have data going back into the 1960s. But it's really the past 10 to 20 years or so that academia has shifted from just kind of left of center to really hard left in a monolith. And both of these things coming together, journalism and academia, when they're all the echo chamber of the same political perspective, uh, people that are willing to do independent journalism from the outside are uh, are rare. They, they stand out. So the New York Post ends up being one of the few dissenting voices or the Washington Free Beacon, which is a very, very small newspaper. They played an essential role in uncovering Claudine Gay's plagiarism because the mainstream media was uh, unwilling to touch it for political reasons. So let's talk now about you, Christopher Rufo, Chris Brunette as well. So there was like a few people who were really involved in exposing this plagiarism. So like, how does that work? You know, how do you yeah. go about like, where did it start that, that the investigation, you know, you said it came before this testimony at Congress, there was like already kind of, you know, rumors floating around about this plagiarism. Like, how do you go about kind of opening that up, what are the methods that you use and um, uh, what's the story about uncovering the plagiarism there? Right. So uh, it seems like the New York Post was uh, very early on. They were trying to poke around and they had found instances of it. But again, Harvard shuts them down, threatens them with lawyers. Uh, after the congressional testimony, others started to investigate it. And so uh, part of my background is I work on academic and university ethics. Uh, I wrote a, a, a book on it with Jason Brennan called Cracks in the Ivory Tower. And it's basically about why academia and universities behave badly. We have an, an entire chapter in there on cheating, for example, which turns out to be pervasive in higher ed. 
And then I've been involved in plagiarism stories in the past. Uh, I've uh, uh, covered it, uh, uncovered academic fraud, and uncovered academic misconduct, uh, including most recently, just over a year ago, uh, Princeton professor Kevin Cruz, who's a uh, very prominent left wing. He was at the time a Twitter celebrity on the political left, MSNBC commentator, again, mm. very prominent voice, 1619 Project contributor. And I was reviewing one of his books a few years ago, and I found signs of passages that looked a little suspicious. And I start digging deeper and deeper and deeper, and you start seeing the same thing with Claudia Gay, a pattern of plagiarism. So I had written about that for Reason Magazine. Uh, Chronicle of Higher Education looks at it, and they said, yeah, this is basically plagiarism as per Princeton's policy. But Princeton did the same thing. They circled the wagons, and they came up with these euphemized excuses. Well, this is accidental cutting and pasting. I don't think they went quite so far as duplicative language, but it was the same vein as the Claudine Gay things. So uh, I, I had been involved in studying plagiarism stories, and when uh, the uh, Claudine Gay testimony occurred, uh, I started being contacted by some of the reporters and writers that were investigating it as one of the academic experts to look over the passages. Uh, so Chris Rufo and Chris Brunette were working on it for the uh, Manhattan Institute, and that they sent a, a, a list of some of the passages in the dissertation, and it was, uh, take a look at these to see if they would uh, uh, qualify as plagiarism. Can you investigate these? Basically, can you vet them? And then almost at the exact same time, the Washington Free Beacon as well starts to investigate other plagiarism outside of the dissertation. And again, I was one of the, uh, the, the people that was brought in to look at some of those passages. Of course, this piques my own curiosity. So I start digging in other uh, known articles from Claudine Gay. And I found a couple more passages, uh, including one of the ones that she claimed that she now was correcting in the American Political Science Review. And it was I had seen the dissertation passages. I started reading her article in the American Political Science Review. And I, I see a sentence that looks almost identical to uh, one of the ones in the dissertation. And then I start Googling it. And it turns out it's copied from another source. So uh, it, I, I even got into it myself. So uh, basically out of those 50 or so uh, plagiarism allegations, a couple of them are the ones that I found subsequent to both the Free Beacon and uh, uh, Chris Rufo and Chris Brunette's discoveries. And that basically is how the story started to un unfold. That's amazing. So, you know, I don't know if all of our listeners know, but you were involved with something similar when it came to Francis Collins and Fauci yeah. uh, and their smear against the Great Barrington Declaration. You had done this FOIA request to see what had happened around the time that the Great Barrington Declaration was suppressed. And of course, for anybody who doesn't know, that was uh, basically advocating against lockdowns and, you know, saying that we should have freedom to decide what to do and focus protection and things like that. So, um, this seems to be kind of, you're kind of like a fact checker, which is hilarious because I know, <laughs> I know what you think of fact checkers, right? Like, you know, who tend to be politicized and all of this, but like, how do you differentiate this kind of like debunking or fact checking? You know, like critics are saying, oh, it's the alt-right or it's the the far right who are coming in and, you know, uh, trying to take down Claudine and others, like wh what's the difference there for, for people like you and Rufo and Brunette who are, who are pursuing the truth? Right. Right. Well, you know, I've always said, uh, digging into academic misconduct, uh, academic ethics has been a core area of my research for the better part of a decade. Uh, so this is something that I, I not only, 
pursue when I find individual cases, but I actually have an expertise on this, uh, published in top university presses. Uh, it's quite a substantial part of my CV is looking at academic ethics. So, uh, you know, I, I, independent of being the discoverer of some of these things, uh, I, I probably would be a natural person to call for uh, media commentary on this subject. Uh, so, so there's that part of the background on it. Uh, and, and, you know, I differentiate myself from the fact checkers that are employed by, uh, uh, you know, a typical newspaper or some of these fake fact checking organizations. They often lack any expertise in what they purport to be fact checking. Uh, these are not people that have uh, uh, qualifications to investigate and be the arbiter of whether something is or isn't uh, isn't true. They're often people with like a BA in English who just have strong political opinions and got hired by uh, PolitiFact or something similar mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that, so there's, so there's a difference of the characteristics of the people that are trying it. Uh, and, you know, the second part of it is uh, most of the media fact checkers are very much a part of that political echo chamber. They share the same opinions and beliefs of journalism. And the fact that journalism has become so far skewed to the left means that it's almost always outsiders who are going to be the ones that point out uh, malfeasance when it occurs. You know, in the, in the case of Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci, the media was like 99.9% .9 on their side on everything since the start of COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, the media would never file the Freedom of Information Act request to investigate Fauci because they were basically worshiping the guy, uh, putting him on camera and treating him as if he's the savior of the United States during COVID. Uh, it turns out he's actually a really unethical actor. And if you probe around and, and just do some basic journalism, uh, basic digging into uh, public records, uh, he really exposed himself. You start seeing this guy that's operating behind the scenes and really... Uh, uh, you know, duplicitous ways that are quite different from his on-camera persona. And this is often a common theme on, on academic scandals, on uh, public health expert scandals, and on scandals involving anyone that, that comes from a background of expertise is uh, that they put forth a very uh, clean public veneer. So Kevin Cruz, for example, prior to uh, uh, my discovery of evidence of plagiarism in his own work, uh, he was actually fairly notorious. He'd tweet all the time whenever he saw a plagiarist on the other side of the aisle. Uh, he was very, very harsh against them. So, uh, you know, there were, there were accusations that Melania Trump had uh, plagiarized a portion of her speech. And there were other accusations against uh, a, uh, uh, there was a, a sheriff that was being, being considered for an appointment in the uh, Trump administration. And what do you do? You go back into Kevin Cruz's Twitter feed and it's, if this person was a, uh, a student in my class, I would fail and expel them. Uh, this is obviously plagiarism. And it turns out he's doing worse things in his own <laughs> academic work than what he's trying to accuse other people of doing. So much projection, <clears throat> so much projection, yeah. you know. And another thing that I found so interesting there, like in kind of comparing, you know, the Fauci files and what's happening now with Claudine is that do you remember when Fauci, of course you do, when he had said, I am the science, basically, like, if you right. criticize me, you're criticizing the science. Well, yeah. I don't know if you, I'm sure you've read this too, but Claudine, she had written a letter after she stepped down. And yeah. I'm going to read a quote from that letter. My hope is that by stepping down, I will deny demagogues the opportunity to further weaponize my presidency in their campaign to undermine the ideals animating Harvard since its founding. 
excellence, openness, independence, truth. And then um, she basically was saying, you know, if you're questioning me, then you're questioning all of academia. Like, you know, you're, you're attacking the institutions, you know, like you could read the whole letter, but that was kind of her spiel. So, you know, what is that kind of mindset that people have like that, you know, of projection, like she's saying these demagogues are trying to take me down, you know, and, but, but in the meanwhile, like that's kind of how she was acting. She was acting like somebody who was supposed to be untouchable, you know, like yeah. you, you couldn't, you couldn't touch her. And, and a big part of that was identity politics too. Like, you know, I'm a black woman as well, and you're not able to kind of come after me, which is really sad because that's, you know, living in a world now where we're so focused on identity, whereas before, you know, that would have been considered racist. Right, right. Well, she's clearly trying to weaponize her own race as a defense mechanism. Uh, you know, I think Claudine Gay, she's genuinely acting in a way that's incorrigible. Uh, the evidence is overwhelming that uh, there is it, it, plagiarism after plagiarism after plagiarism across more than half of her works. You start to get to 50 different examples. Uh, it, it's kind of like it's time to throw in the towel here. Uh, if this was a one-off case where maybe she had uh, uh, inadvertently copied a sentence here or there uh, in her dissertation uh, 25 years ago, and you see no further subsequent evidence of it, uh, then, okay, maybe some of that starts to become more believable. But the fact that it's a 25-year uh, a pattern, uh, the fact that it, uh, it covers, you know, dozens upon dozens of instances across multiple academic works, uh, it, it's like you are not being maligned here. Uh, you actually did uh, commit some very slipshod forms of research misconduct. And now she's, she's basically trying to claim racism as the reason uh, to excuse herself. But if, if we yeah. look at other uh, plagiarism instances, we look at other scandals, uh, plagiarism is actually something that's, that's quite common in academia, and it's usually punished in a very harsh way. And I'd say on two levels. First one is we compare to other university presidents that have been involved in research misconduct. And even in the recent past, uh, you have several examples of white male university presidents that had to resign because of plagiarism scandals or other forms of research misconduct. So there was a uh, university president in South Carolina that's just over a year ago was found to have plagiarized, not in his academic work, a portion of a commencement speech. So mm. far lower level than anything Claudine Gay did. And he resigned basically saying, I can't enforce plagiarism against students after what I did. Uh, and that was basically the, the, what the board of directors seemed to have uh, impressed upon. Uh, there was another case where they found uh, some research misconduct or evidence that uh, that some data was was a little askew. And it was the president of, of Stanford that uh, just last year resigned after uh, some of his research was called into question. So it becomes a matter of, of people at top universities. If you're going to be uh, the leader and you have a record that uh, that is compromised on issues of basic academic conduct, that starts to be drawn into question. And Claudine Gay is only the most recent example of that. And, you know, the second component of this, look at how she behaved as Harvard president in adjudicating cases of students that are accused of cheating and misconduct at Harvard. And we have 
the most recent data I think came out from 2020, 2021. And uh, Gay was in the administration at the time. She was a dean. Uh, she hadn't yet been appointed Harvard president. But uh, the policy for students that had been in place was basically zero tolerance. And there are dozens of cases that have played out in the last several years of Harvard students that either faced a one year suspension or were expelled for the university from the university for doing less than Claudine Gay herself did. So you have that whole angle. How can you lead an institution that enforces these rules against dozens upon dozens of students accused of similar things? And you are wanting to get off with a slap on your wrist and say you did nothing wrong. And yet they get expelled or they get suspended for the year. You know, it's funny because like students, I mean, I think obviously plagiarism is a bad thing, but you can understand more, you know, like these students, some of them, they're just naive. Some you of them, they're, they, they, they yeah, they're under before. intense pressure. You know, they're going to Harvard. <laughs> they want to graduate. Like, you know, they have different kinds of incentives. And when you're in your twenties, like you're going to mess up a lot more, you right. know? Uh, right. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of more forgivable and maybe like more kind of grace should be given. And there could be, you know, a kind of way to, to redirect people, maybe that has something to do as well, like with the university culture and with the pressure in academia um, that kind of causes people to do this kind of stuff. But in 2019 at Harvard, they changed their policy on plagiarism right. just for the staff, right? Like just for right. Right. people yeah, like Claudine, so, not for so the students. <laughs> the most recent discovery uh, is that uh, Harvard has a uh, an honor code that applies to students and some very strict plagiarism policies. You can find it on the web, Google Harvard's plagiarism policy. And very, very strict. And it says, uh, you know, failure to use quotation marks, failure to properly cite, even borrowing short phrases of text with common language. Uh, this counts as plagiarism, whether it's intentional or not. Uh, basically, says repeatedly over and over, intent does not matter. And yet uh, in 2019, it appears, and uh, this is when Claudine Gay is, is in the administration. Uh, we don't know exactly who wrote it, but uh, she certainly approved of it. Uh, they changed the faculty guidelines for academic research conduct. They added a, uh, a little phrase in there that said basically intentionality uh, is something that's evaluated and unintentional plagiarism, which I kind of uh, scratched my head at that one. I, I, I can't figure out how you, how one unintentionally plagiarizes, <laughs> especially if it's a recurring pattern. Now, maybe if there's a one-off uh, uh, instance where someone forgot to include quotation marks or forgot to include a citation, that might be accidental plagiarism. But when it's 50 examples and, uh, you know, here's the thing on Claudine Gay, uh, some of the examples of, of plagiarism in her work were copied entire, she copied entire paragraphs from other authors. And then she went through and she'd swap out a few words with synonyms. So it'd be, uh, uh, just use a slightly different phrasing. Uh, that to me conveys intention to try to disguise that she had just copied the paragraph. And that's yeah. usually a, a tactic that plagiarists do is they'll, uh, they'll cut and paste something from somebody else, but then they'll go through and make minor cosmetic edits to make it appear as if it's their own work. Uh, that in itself betrays intentionality uh, of the action because you can't really do that. I mean, Kevin Cruz was the same thing. He copied and pasted a uh, paragraph from another book, and it was a book about Detroit. And then he went through and he changed Detroit to Atlanta, which is what his uh, his dissertation was about. 
Uh, wow. I mean, you, you can't do that accidentally. <laughs> it's just, uh, <clears throat> I mean, the very act itself is its own proof. Yeah, and I saw actually there was also one of her critics, because people are afraid. I saw even scholars who were uh, copied by by Claudine Gay, they're kind mm -hmm. of like, either they're on her side, you know, because they're ideologically yeah. aligned maybe, or they're just kind of afraid. So they're like, oh, it's okay. It's not a big deal that Claudine copied all of my work, like pretty much verbatim. But some <laughs> of her, <laughs> some of her critics are saying, you know what, actually in the nineties, her plagiarism is even more serious because then you had to use a typewriter, you know, like you're right. not just copying and pasting. You didn't have the internet where you could get ebooks that you could copy from. So that's it actually right. had to be entered in my hand. Yeah. It's like, and you just yeah. picture somebody sitting there, like, you know, next to something, reading a book and, and copying. So like for me in my mind, I think like the, the bigger thing behind all of this is like, if you're a serial plagiarist, you don't really have original ideas. Like you, you know, when you, let's say you read something that kind of inspires your mind and you're, and you're kind of learning from somebody else's ideas, of course, you're going to cite them in some way and say, I read this by so-and-so and, and write about it a little bit, but you, you take the idea to plant a seed for your own ideas. So I think Very like, so. you know, in this case, it's like, there's no originality to what Claudine was doing. And <clears throat> she was somehow able to climb the ladder throughout her career and make it to be the president of Harvard, $900,000 a year salary. And that's just <laughs> salary, not saying anything else. And all the other perks and benefits of the job. Yeah. That's... Yeah. So how did she get there, Phil? Like how in this day does Claudine Gay, serial plagiarist, become president of Harvard? Well, I think what we start to see is a pattern in some of these cases is a, a, a lot of the plagiarism and other forms of academic misconduct that occur. And this could be anything like data fabrication, which some other people have done. Uh, sometimes it's misrepresentation of quotes. You know, I made a, a, a small uh, cottage industry out of catching some of these cases. But they almost they almost always come from that left wing echo chamber within academia. And what it means is if they're saying the right things, their politics are approved, their politics are consistent with the uh, uh, preferred viewpoints of uh, academia and the university system at large, nobody scrutinizes them. Hmm. And what it does is it means it takes the, uh, someone to come along and just catch out of the corner of their eye a passage that looks suspicious or a number that seems wrong. And that's usually how these things are discovered. Uh, you know, the classic case happened about 20 years ago it was Michael Belial. He was a historian at Emory University, very uh, prestigious uh, position. And he had written a book about uh, the supposed history of firearms ownership in the United States. And his big thesis was that uh, the notion of, uh, of the founding era of everyone being uh, armed and, uh, and having a right to bear arms, he basically claims that this is a myth and that gun ownership was rare and heavily regulated. And he purported to uh, go back into all these probate records of wills uh, when people died to calculate the number of firearms that they have. Well, uh, it turns out after his book came out, uh, it suddenly makes a huge splash on the academic left. They love it because it's an argument that can be used today to argue for more uh, gun reg regulation, argue against Second Amendment cases. Uh, it wins all these prestigious prizes. It goes into top academic journals. Uh, it becomes acclaimed as this, this widely 
influential book that's going to turn the tide of the gun rights debate uh, toward the left. And then people start digging around and they find that uh, he is citing data sources that do not exist. The most notorious one, uh, as he claimed to have all these probate records from San Francisco that were destroyed in the 1906 earthquake. And you're, you're already asking this question, well, how does this guy have probate records from the 19th century that were destroyed in an earthquake in 1906? And, and the answer is he doesn't. He fabricated his data. And then they wow. start asking him questions. Well, uh, can we see your sources? And he says, well, uh, I think there was one point he claimed that there was a flood in my office and it destroyed all my notes. <laughs> the like, dog ate my homework. <laughs> yeah, the dog ate my homework type of excuses. And initially, these these um, problems are being noticed by, uh, again, outsiders from the political left. Uh, one, one of the people that found them uh, is a, uh, a historian, writer, researcher by the name of Clayton Kramer, who uh, uh, was affiliated with the NRA and gun rights. And, of course, the story becomes attack his motives, not look at the evidence, but attack his motives. And all these major historical associations uh, issued statements defending Michael Belial. But finally, the evidence became so overwhelming, they started uh, putting the footnotes side by side with sources that don't exist. They found uh, evidence of, of very clear misconduct that uh, even the academic left could not deny it. So uh, uh, Amory basically uh, pressured this guy to resign. They rescinded his book prize and he was discredited. But it was always the outsider uh, who is who is making basically an uphill case to scrutinize a favored political narrative that the left has rallied and latched onto. And the fact that academia has shifted so far to the left, it means that uh, it, you know, that echo chamber is like the default position now. There are very, very few dissent, dissenting voices when misconduct comes along. And the result is that uh, you get people uh, in high prestige positions in universities that get away with this stuff year after year after year. Attack his motives. I think that that's key right there because we see this happening now. Like I saw people attacking you on Twitter, calling you a racist. Basically, you were like, "What about Absolutely. Kevin Cruz? He was an old white male." Like, and I did, you know, I, I exposed his plagiarism there, and but just passes over the head. I saw this with Christopher Rufo as well. Um, that people were trying to discredit his education. Right. And say, oh, you're not a real Harvard graduate, this and that. There was also Bill Ackman. Uh, I don't know if yeah. you know a little bit about that story and his wife. So, like, can you talk a little bit about about what this looks like, this kind of attacking of the motive, saying, oh, they're doing this because, yeah. you know, they're crazy right wing and they want to take us down or whatever else it is. And then attacking like kind of character assassination or trying to to take people down, to discredit them, uh, to show that they're nobodies and to basically say like they're not part of the club. So like they have no yeah. they have no room here to criticize us. Sure projection on the side of the far left. I mean, evidence is presented, unambiguous evidence of academic misconduct is presented from sources that they don't like. And their way to deflect having to engage with the clear evidence of plagiarism, clear evidence of, of other forms of academic mis misconduct is to uh, character assassinate the people that pointed out. So they start doing the exact same thing that they are accusing others of doing, which is they engage in a motivated quest for digging up dirt. And some of it uh, turns, it actually ends up 
pretty absurd. Like you mentioned, the Chris Rufo case, Chris Rufo has a master's degree from Harvard that he gets through the extension program, which is like the, the online and night course degree. It's basically for continuing education for adults. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get the debate about the, the, the merits of those programs and the merits of uh, other, other Harvard standards, but uh, Harvard is very clear on its website that a degree from the extension program is a fully fledged Harvard degree. Uh, they are, they become Harvard alums. They get a Harvard diploma. Uh, the, everything about it is, is, comes with the brand of the university. And it's been that way since this program started over a century ago. It's a, a program that began in 1910. So it's not like some new thing for the online world. Uh, they just used to do it uh, through snail mail and other types of correspondence. But uh, Rufo has this degree and then they start saying, uh, I think it was the, the New Republic even ran a story claiming that Rufo had misrepresented his degree from Harvard because it wasn't a real Harvard degree. It was a Harvard Extension School uh degree and you're saying like wait a minute i can go on harvard's website and see very clearly that says this is an accredited degree from harvard uh they just completely made this up and in in doing so because they were so eager to go after rufo uh, to tear him down to character assassinate him uh they almost unwittingly besmirched the thousands of people that have gone through harvard extension school uh including many are non-traditional students that come from less privileged backgrounds than the admission into Harvard. That's not so good for them. Elitist <laughs> snobbery yeah. from the far left. It's like, we're, we're the only true Harvard and, and the, uh, uh, the people that get this degree are, are, are lesser than us all because they wanted to go after Chris Rufo. Uh, so, yeah. so, so it's just insane. It and is then, such an elitist snobbery. Just to stop you there for a second. I mean, like this is, that is really elitist snobbery, like in a nutshell. Yeah. I mean, it's so condescending looking down upon people like what a great accomplishment to be like, okay, you know what, I'm going to go and get educated at Harvard while I'm doing right. other things, right? Like while I'm, right. you know, already maybe working or I have this kind of degree, but I want to do something else, like whatever it is, like that's a great accomplishment. And it just shows like that, you know, just this uh, high nosed kind of pedigree focused elitism. Yeah. But in the meanwhile, you have all of these courses that they're teaching now. And I talked to you off camera about this, another article that came up uh, from a another dean of Harvard who was there from 1995 until I think 2001 or 2003, talking about how all of these courses at Harvard now are about decolonization, uh, uh, identity politics, uh, colonial oppression, intersectionality, right? So it's like you're teaching all of this stuff, right? You have this like obviously huge messiah complex because you look down upon all of these people. And then when you have somebody who's actually accomplished and who's actually pursuing the truth, which is a very liberal value, you know, yeah. then you're going to go after them. So it's just crazy. It absolutely is. And it speaks to, you know, I think a real problem that Harvard and other elite universities have right now is they've opened the door to this critical theory mindset, which, you know, as, as far as I'm concerned, critical theory is the humanities and social sciences equivalent of astrology. It's a Marxist ideology uh, that is premised upon, uh, you know, dividing the world in between, uh, between the oppressors and the oppressed and the oppressed are inherently right and the oppressors are inherently wrong. And everything is a construct of the oppressor to take away from the oppressed. 
Uh, you know, it's the whole worldview and, uh, all that flows from it is, you know, you, it becomes even a rationalization to engage in slipshod research or outright research misconduct as long as you are doing it for the cause of overthrowing the oppressors. And this uh, makes so sense too, right? Like when you, when you see yeah. how, how, they reacted to Rufo in trying to take him down that way. Like if you look at his intersectional points or whatever compared to Claudine, you could say, oh, look, Rufo, he's a, a white male, conservative leaning, whatever, you know. So he's like, he's, you know, he has less points than she does. But if you look at their actual reality, like she she was the president of Harvard, you know, right. so like in, in uh, making of Harvard someone of immense power in academia at the absolute top of her discipline. Uh, Kevin Cruz is the other example. And I keep going back to him because he is the quintessential white male comes from a privileged background, went to like a elite private schools, went through the Ivy league for his, his degree. And uh, it is just a classic white male elite Ivy league professor. And yet somehow they'll look the other way because he's uh, he has the right politics. It's okay. Uh, even though, you know, he, he fits the description of everything that they would use to attack and trash other people. So as long as you have the right politics, the right ideology, like nothing else really matters. Like your intersectional points come secondary to ideology. And, and this kind of like segues me into something else that I wanted to ask you about, which is related to all of this, um, but kind of taking a little bit of a walk uh, in, in a little bit of a tangent, which is, um, you know, how this all started with the kind of anti-Semitism yeah. that was displayed by various presidents, or, you know, maybe if we don't want to make an, uh, an accusation of anti-Semitism, at the very least, a refusal to acknowledge that if you're calling for genocidal chants on campus <laughs> against Jews, that you can say, no, 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 this is, you know, we denounce this. So like, why is there this, I know like the UN as well, Antonio Guterres, who's, you know, a socialist, a Marxist, uh, you know, he's, He's made very similar kind of remarks when it comes to uh, not wanting to condemn Hamas. Um, where does this kind of anti-Semitic streak come from in the far left? Yeah. Well, uh, among the Marxist world, it goes straight to Karl Marx himself. Uh, Karl Marx's own writings are deeply anti-Semitic. Hmm. Uh, and Karl Marx had, had Jewish ancestry, but, uh, you know, separate and apart from that, uh, he, he basically publishes works that portray Jewish bankers as like the, these instruments of an international conspiracy. There's one really notorious, uh, article he wrote for the New York Tribune and it was published anonymously and it's about the Crimean War. And it's a, it's basically like a, uh, a protocols of the elders of Zion style. Uh, conspiracy theory about he claims that the Jewish banking houses of Europe have manipulated the world into into all these wars. A deeply anti-Semitic character himself. Uh, this appears elsewhere in his economic thinking. Uh, you know, it, it's clear that he associates greed and avarice with certain characteristics. Mm -hmm. um, there's a deep anti-Semitic undertone to a lot of Marx's work, and that's carried forward. In the academic left, uh, among his followers, uh, you also see evidence in the progressive era. Uh, it was actually progressive economists that, the, that are the leading figures of the eugenics movement. Uh, they are 
uh, the American Economic Association at its founding, like passed all these resolutions and published all these these guides about eugenic theory that supported uh, uh, the notion that uh, that white Northern Europeans are of allegedly superior genetic stock. Uh, than other people. And then they start attributing social problems among African-Americans uh, to uh, uh, allegedly genetic characteristics when it turns out it's not genetics at all. It's, uh, it's actually the opposite of that. It's, it's oppression by government that has created a, a lot of these problems. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's something there. there's always been an element of anti-Semitism and racism that's been deeply ingrained in the far left. And a lot of it comes from the idea of, of being a social planner that draws people towards eugenics or that draws people toward uh, these conspiratorial uh, outlooks that say that this group of other people are the reason for the problem. It's not just uh, uh, normal human interactions of individuals that produce conflict. It's, uh, it's always attributing it to another group. And uh, both, I, th- I think, the Marxist outlook and the progressive planner outlook are very conducive to that way of thinking. And yet, at the same time, they've tried to make a name for themselves as condemning racism, uh, condemning anti-Semitism, uh, which is almost uh, propagandistic in some of its uh, respects. Uh, you know, this is something the Soviet Union tried to do to the United States, as they pointed out, well, the United States claims to be a free country, but they're hypocrites because they have segregation. And yes, that was a huge blemish on our history, uh, but it's not because the Soviet Union loved black people that they were making this case. It was rather an attempt in the Cold War to try to denigrate the United States, even though racism is actually pervasive in the Soviet Union. Anti-Semitism was pervasive in the Soviet Union. There are visitors that went over there uh, during the high watermark of Stalin, and they're, they're just shocked at, at just how disgustingly bigoted the society is, uh, including government persecutions within that society. So uh, it, it's almost been something like the left has, for 150 years, gotten a pass on its racism and its own anti-Semitism. And now that that's kind of on full public display, it's been brought uh, uh, under attention, both by these things like the testimony, by some of these campus protests. Uh, Average Americans are seeing this and they're disgusted by what they see, rightly so. Uh, And yet the left has really no answer, so they deflect. And that's what we're seeing in the Harvard case. That's what we're seeing in some of these other cases. I don't know like how many people are actually disgusted though. I mean, Twitter of course is it's kind of um its own microcosm, but at yes. the same time there are people, you know, who aren't on Twitter who might think differently, but I, I find that it gives sometimes a pretty accurate reflection of the real world and how people think. And I, I just see that, you know, there's anti-Semitism really from the far left, and there's also from people who are kind of like on the truther side of things yes, like you know yeah. they they they're just like okay no this is horseshoe. yeah you you have, you have the far left anti-semites and then you have some of these weird extreme alt-right anti-semites and it turns out they agree on some yeah. of these things you're, you're also seeing this uh, in the economic views of the extreme far left they've always been anti-capitalistic they've always been marxist but you're starting to see the extreme alt-right types are now ranting against neoliberalism mm-hmm. and, uh, and claiming that uh, it's the liberal economic system that has destabilized the culture. Uh, so you get these anti-capitalist uh, messages from the far right that sound almost indistinguishable from the conspiracy blog at Jacobin Magazine. 
Well, if you remember, uh, obviously, I'm sure you do in The Road to Serfdom, Hayek talks about this in multiple passages. He says, you know, every everyone who started as a socialist ended up a fascist, and the, the communist and the fascist resembled each other. They were looking for the support of the same kind of mind. And the only yes. one that they couldn't convince was the liberal of the old type, he called it, really. So like the kind of classical liberal, I guess, or... Um, so it's, it's really, really interesting to see all of this stuff kind of just, just become exposed. It's like this fungus that's covering the earth and you're like, oh my gosh, like, do you think that this is, um, you know, in the big picture, Phil, does this kind of indicate, like you've studied history, multiple eras, multiple nations. Like, do you think that we're kind of in a dangerous time in a way? Uh, I'd say in a way, I think intellectually we are in a dangerous time because um, institutions of higher education, institutions of media uh, and culture have shifted so hardly in a polarized way on the left. Uh, I mean, this is something you see in the survey data, which is another area I've been studying in higher ed. Mm -hmm. Since the 1960s, we've been tracking where faculty identify in the political spectrum. And it used to be kind of center left was the uh, uh, the middle of the pack, but there were also sizable minorities of conservatives and moderates, classical liberals, uh, enough to, uh, to kind of keep things in balance. And it lasted like that for about 40 years. And then in the early 2000s, you start to see the moderates and the conservatives go into almost a free fall. Uh, they retire and they're not being replaced. And the new hires are all being on the uh, made on the political left. So now we get to a uh, like to, today. It's something near two thirds of all university professors identify in the political left, and within that subset, it's the radical left that's really accelerated. It's uh, it basically tripled in the course of uh, uh, about fifteen to twenty years the number of people that identify in the hard left, the radical left, the Marxists. And you think about this, that this is a widely discredited ideology, and yet it has a, a huge following in academia, and it's particularly concentrated in certain uh, disciplines in the humanities and social sciences. So the empirical evidence is there. The universities have shifted to this left-wing monolith. Uh, minority voices are prone to self-censorship because they're afraid that they're going to be attacked. That's like painting a target on yourself if you're a professor that questions the DEI ideology, that questions Claudine Gay, questions Kevin Cruz, questions any of these figures on the, the political left because they operate as attack dogs. Yeah, it must be a really kind of scary and repressive environment for people. And I'm sure, too, for people who are researching in academia who want to be able to get funding for their projects, you know, like even if you're not in the social sciences, but if you're doing math or science or, you know, anything like that, you probably also have to kind of toe the ideological line or at least not publicly come out against it, right? Right, right. Well, it's the same thing as Anthony Fauci controlled billions of dollars of NIH funding. So if you're in the hard sciences, you could not go against Anthony Fauci. You could not point out the obvious that this guy was probably aware of the lab leak, uh, probably aware of uh, gain-of-function research being done with NIH dollars, and yet tried to suppress and tried to cover that up and because he was such a presence in, in the field and controlled the purse strings of the field, no one was willing to call him out or question him. Yeah, that that there's so many parallels there, I think, with Fauci 
and with Claudine Gay right now, it's it's just like a really kind of it's like out of the same playbook almost. So, you know, another thing that I thought of, too, you know, I was thinking about this last night, kind of mentally preparing for our chat. And I thought I think like one of the reasons that those three presidents of these of these elite universities were sitting there in this in this testimony and they could not say we condemn this anti-semitism and we condemn these chants for genocide against Jews is because it goes exactly against what their institutions are indoctrinating the new generations to think right right so, like, what do you think about all of that? This kind of like this critical theory, this DEI stuff, yeah. all of these. How does that poison the minds of of this new generation? Well, it's it's weakened standards of academic rigor and scholarship. Because if you read this critical theory stuff, I mean, it, it's pervasive. It's everywhere in the humanities journals. It's a it, it's it's a very dominant. Uh, approach to doing scholarship, but you read it just on its pure intellectual quality, it's complete drag. It's uh, uh, non-empirical in nature. It often just makes assertions, and they're very ideological, political assertions, never proves it. it uh, if it uses evidence at all, it often misrepresents or abuses that evidence and then substitutes in all these weird conspiracy theories about the supposed neoliberal takeover of the world or whatever the, the hap uh, happens to be the fashionable buzzword of the moment. Uh, so, so this it's really low-grade, low-quality scholarship that's being churned out of these departments. And it's kind of an emperor has no clothes situation when you uh, call them out and point out that, hey, uh, some of these uh, uh, really slipshod ideologies that have taken – uh, root in many humanities and social sciences and increasingly other parts of the university system. Uh, certainly the administrative bureaucracy around diversity, equity, and inclusion is, is very heavily bought into this type of stuff. Uh, it, it's kind of admitting that basically you're spending billions of dollars every year producing nothing but ideological activism that does not have a return to the public. If anything, it poisons the public. Yeah. And then like, where are these guys supposed to go work? You know, like, how do they become productive members of society? Like, it's no wonder that, you know, they're being trained with this kind of mindset. And then they just, you know, they're, they're marching in the streets, like they want a revolution, like it actually kind of scares me when I when I look outside, I see, you know, in Toronto is the closest major city to me. Sure. And you just have like this kind of um, combo pack the Marxists and Islamists, you know, who are marching together. And there's like, I've been looking into this and I find that there's a lot that's kind of shared in the ideology. In fact, I wanted to write something about how Marx and Mohammed actually kind of had a lot in common. And like both of these ideologies were based upon this kind of victimhood, like violent revolution, seizing other people's property, and, you know, taking it for yourself. And so it's it's kind of scary to see that this is like what people are doing with this education. Like they're not actually kind of going out there and becoming productive members of society. Um, and I, I think like, you know, where we're at now in, in, you know, the last couple of hundred years since the Industrial Revolution, it's like people don't necessarily know what to do with their lives. You know, there's, there's the the workforce has changed. And so they seem kind of drawn into these degrees that have no use in real life. And then afterwards, they're just like, okay, I'll just go march in the street. 
Yeah, well, that's what I see. I think in a sense we're, we're a victim of our own affluence. Uh, we we are a society that's that's very well off, uh, and, I, and I mean this worldwide. Technology has never been at a higher state in human history. Uh, medicine, uh, the advances and convenience of life that are available to masses and masses of people. You don't have to have a a huge income to own a little personal computer in your pocket that uh, has all sorts of functions that your grandparents never would have dreamed of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're, we're in a very wealthy time, uh, but what it does, has created is uh, opportunity to pursue degrees out of leisure as basically consumption goods. Uh, I'm going to go get my degree in critical poetry studies. Uh, there, there's probably not a very big job market for that. And yet you can sit around and, and uh, ruminate about Marx and, uh, and all sorts of other uh, crazy left-wing political causes uh, basically do social science without any social science rigor or standards. And uh, I think you, you see a lot of that. Plus, it's also we've subsidized college degrees to such a, uh, a an extent that there's no financial repercussion for getting into a degree program that takes 10, 12 years of your life from bachelor's to Ph.D., uh, in a field that essentially has zero uh, job prospects. Yes. And the result is you get people that have uh, masses of human, uh, uh, of uh, masses amounts of, of debt that they've accumulated to get these degrees, but then they go to the government and seek forgiveness of that debt. So that's the major push right now. Uh, and there's no real job prospect for uh, a degree in critical poetry studies or, or uh, gender studies or any of these, uh, these fields that, uh, are, are basically just political activism. So, uh, yeah, you know, what, what do you do with your time? It turns out that you've, uh, you've just spent the last several years of your life engaged in uh, pursuing a very, very expensive consumption degree uh, that uh, has a little in the way of a career path. And once you're done, uh, the only thing you know how to do is to be a, a, a political activist. Yeah, a social justice warrior, basically. Like, that's your kind of training. And so, like, I guess you can either kind of climb up the ladder like Claudine Gay does and then become the person who manages everybody else in academia mm-hmm. or maybe become a professor. But, like... Well, that's why we see university administrative bloat. Uh, and I've made this argument before, and I think the data tends to uh, to support it. Uh, administrators are growing not because there are new functions that need to be filled in the university system. Uh, it's bureaucratic bloat to one degree, but the other component of it is it's soaking up a surplus of PhDs out of the humanities that uh, have really weak job markets. There aren't enough academic jobs to employ every PhD that's emerged from the university system in the last several decades. So what do they do? They create the uh, assistant vice dean of parking lots and uh, hire someone with an English degree in it. And uh, academic bloat starts to beget itself because what do they do? Administrators, when they arrive on the scene, they lobby for bigger budgets next year to hire more administrators. And it becomes a way to absorb the surplus of PhDs and these really low rigor, uh, oversaturated fields that uh, have resulted from the fact that we've too heavily subsidized higher ed for far too long. You know, what a, what a, what a giant lie that a lot of people are sold and, and how difficult it must be now to kind of go through that system. Like I know I have um, a friend's daughter who was studying uh, psychology and 
she was like, I just write my papers in a way that, you know, like I know that I'm going to get good grades, but I don't believe a lot of the stuff that I'm saying, you know, because she's, yeah. So, so, but she doesn't know know what to do. Right. In particular, because, you know, you go get a degree at Harvard, you can major in engineering, but they're going to make you take the gen ed class in English and history and philosophy, uh, all of the gen ed curriculum. That's normally about a third of most undergraduate degrees. And if those courses are just hopelessly politicized, students do one of two things. A very small number of them become converts and and decide to to major in the politicized discipline. But the vast majority, they view them as blow off classes. So they learn to go through the motions. Mm -hmm. They learn to regurgitate the political lines back to the professor, get the easy A. They self-censor. They leave that class and they never think about that subject matter again. Uh, so, So it's a really inefficient way to educate people. You know, you know, they're mostly interested in getting the degree in the thing that they want to study. They want to become an engineer or an accountant or a, a, a biologist. And that's where you need really specialized knowledge. So you get a bifurcation in the university system where these weak, low rigor, heavily politicized disciplines are riding on the reputation of the stronger fields mm-hmm. that are actually producing uh, people with skills. Now, I don't know how bad it is in American universities in terms of, you know, like the engineering programs and the mathematics and the economics. It probably depends as well on different universities that you can go to. Obviously, you got a good education and you're and you're managing to to work well in the system, but it's not like that for everybody. But I spoke with somebody um, about a year and a half ago named uh, Harry Wade, and he was a university student who was a year away from graduating his engineering program. And that was the time where they had vaccine mandates and they had mask mandates in university and I had a podcast with him and he told me you know like well, this is what's really going on behind closed doors like everybody takes off their masks the teacher you know kind of looks the other way until he comes into the room everybody puts their masks on and then they wanted to put oh, them yeah and then he said you know what I'm not I'm not gonna perform he was like truly just like a principled guy and he said nope he went to his class he had no vaccine papers he had no mask on he sat there and he said that the professor called the police on him. You might have seen this video circulating. So when the professor left the room to go see the police officer, he said everybody in the auditorium took off their masks. And he was like, this is great. They're going to stand with me in solidarity. Like they're going to, you know, because I know how people really feel about this. And he said that when the police officer came back into the classroom, every single person put their mask up. And they watched him get dragged out of the room by the police officer. And he was no longer able to finish his education. He was he was expelled from the university. And he was telling me, you know, everything that I do is tainted by this ideology, you know, climate change, whatever else it is. And he said, I'm the kind of person like we're the people who are going to be building your bridges, who are going to be, you know, the future right. leaders of society. Like we're in trouble. <laughs> Critical bridge theory or something. Yes, yes, yes. So, you know, that is kind of troublesome. But like, look, is there any kind of, uh, is there silver linings though to these kinds of things coming out? Like the Claudine Gay thing. It's like, look at the failure of DEI. Look at the failure of, you know, this kind of identity politics in the university and this kind of garbage ideology. Yeah, well, it it certainly brought the uh, the problem to the forefront. I think people are seeing for the first time just how crazy and fringe some of the ideas that have taken over large segments of higher ed 
uh, happen to be. You know, most people have a vision of the university from the time that they went through it uh, mm. 15, 20, 30 years ago. And it was, uh, I mean, I'll openly admit this. This is, uh, I, I went through undergraduate in the early 2000s and campus is unrecognizable today compared to what it was even back then. That was the very start of this political shift. Hmm. You go back decades before that, you know, most people think of, well, college degree. I, I took my English class and we studied Shakespeare and I don't really remember too much of it, but I read the Romeo and Juliet. Uh, I took astronomy class and I remember finding stars. Don't remember too much else beyond it. Uh, so they, they think of these classes as still uh, kind of the innocuous versions that they got decades ago. Uh, whereas today you show up in your writing composition 101 class and the assignment is to write an op-ed about how climate change is, is going to destroy us all uh, or write an op-ed about a favored left-wing social cause, inequality, whatever it happens to be. So uh, the degree of politicization has now been moved out of kind of the quiet background of the classrooms and really onto the front page of the national news. Uh, it's on the national TV broadcast. And that's what we saw in the congressional testimony. I think people, most normal, sane people are watching uh, these uh, excuses that they were making, the three university presidents, jumping through all these hoops to avoid condemning genocide and are justly horrified by it. And what that means is uh, it, it represents a change in trust of the university system. We see this in polling that even 2015, the majority of Americans uh, generally had a positive view of a university system. And now that's just tanked to uh, uh, next to nothing. And I think the only people that view universities in a, a strongly positive light are left-wing Democrats. Yeah. Uh, both moderates, Republicans, anyone else, is deeply skeptical right now. So the public's waking up. And what that means is some of the policies that flow through, they're going to be less willing to open the checkbooks of the public accounts as taxpayers to hand the universities, whatever the universities request. And I think that's a, a, a necessary tightening of the belt right now. The fact that there is uh, public oversight and public scrutiny of something that used to be just uh automatically renewed under the idea that we were investing in our future or we're investing in education and that's inherently good. It turns out some of the things that are coming out of universities are not inherently good. Uh, they're actually breeding social discord and, uh, and causing a lot of problems. Uh, so the, the effect of that is basically that, uh, you know, people are skeptical and they won't, uh, they'll turn off the tax dollar spigot. What would you do now if you were like 18 19 and you were going to pursue your future, what would you do? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I'd still think about college because there are skills that you need to learn to enter into certain professions. And the college degree is often the entry barrier to those professions. But this is what I would advise anyone of the 17, 18, 19 years old uh, uh, time frame. Number one, take as many advanced placement tests and credits as you can get when you're in high school. Uh, get those courses out of the way. Uh, what you're trying to do is reduce the gen eds, uh, general education courses. These are the required classes in everything uh, that everyone must take. And they're often the most politicized. They're often the lowest rigor. Uh, frankly, quite a few of them are a waste of time. If you can find easier, lower cost ways to exempt the that's advanced placement tests, or if they don't allow advanced placement tests, 
take the same version of the intro to English 101 class at your local community college where you're paying $500 instead of $5,000, transfer the credit in. As soon as you get to college, pick a major and pick a major in something that has a career prospect ahead of it and start pursuing those courses freshman year. If you've already knocked out your gen eds, uh, you can directly go into that major right away and insulate yourself from some of this. Uh, the other thing is, you know, I, I would say prestige institutions, elite institutions, the Harvard's, Princeton's and Yale's, uh, the reputation that they are riding on is accrued from the past. It's not something that represents them today. Uh, I don't think the intellectual rigor and quality is there anymore, especially in a lot of the programs. Maybe in the really specialized STEM fields and hard sciences, uh, it's still rigorous, but, uh, you know, an English degree from Yale and an English degree from uh, Southwest Central Random State University is probably the same left-wing nonsense. Uh, so if students are aware of that, uh, go in uh, with those expectations set, go in with a strategy to minimize the number of gen ed classes you have to take so you can get right into your major. Uh, you know, this is a better way of using your time and aim to graduate early because not only are you uh, escaping incurring debt of paying tuition, paying room and board by graduating early, you can enter into the workforce so you no longer have the foregone wages of starting your career later uh, because you were pursuing a degree. So uh, try to get done early, try to make it as efficient as possible, try to minimize and reduce your costs and try to insulate yourself from the junk classes and politicized disciplines. That's great. I will definitely share that with some people that I know. Thanks so much, Phil. This was a great discussion and uh, thanks for coming on. I hope to have you back again soon. Absolutely.